As always, I'm your host, Garrison Morado, and I'm very honored to be joined today by non-resident scholar of the Middle East Institute, Mr. Mohammed Salman. Mohammed, thanks so much for joining me today on the podcast. Really great to have you. Hello, sir. Really appreciate the invitation. Mohammed, before we get into the specifics on what we're here to talk about today with West Asia and, and the Middle East and some geopolitical frameworks, it might be nice for some of the listeners to give them a little bit of background about how you came into this field, some of your expertise, and some of the roles you've served in. Absolutely. I'm an Egyptian national, born and raised in Cairo, worked as an engineer, very interested in maps, worked as a consultant in Europe, in Egypt. Then I moved to Washington many years ago, did my master's in Georgetown School of Foreign Service. I moved again to do policy consulting with a company called McLarity Associates. I'm also a scholar with the Mideast Institute. And some of the questions I'm grappling with is usually the geopolitics, geoeconomics, great power competition, the question of technology and geography and maps uh, in this era of great power competition and global disorder. Well, it's a wealth of knowledge, and it's an absolute honor to have you bring that knowledge onto the podcast and share with our listeners and, of course, with myself as well. You know, Mohammed, to kind of kick things off today, I just wanted to, to kind of frame this out a little bit, you know. Growing up in America, as I have, I'm 25, you know, most of my childhood obviously was dominated from a foreign policy perspective by news of the Middle East when it comes to Iraq in particular. A little bit about the Israel-Palestinian peace process, peace negotiations, and so on. News of the UAE, news of Egypt, certainly Arab Spring when I was in high school, and I think we've discussed this before off recording. And then also a little further afield, deeper into Asia, news of Afghanistan. But what with the the drawdown of the campaign in Iraq, what with the exit of the American forces last year from Afghanistan, and what with sort of a lull in the battle against the Islamic State or or Daesh, as one might say, you know, it seems that the Middle East kind of receded from view in favor of more of a great power competition framework, in particular since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, the recent tensions with China and so on. The Middle East does pop up, whether it's difficulties between Israel and, you know, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad that's going on even this week, or President Biden's recent visit to Saudi Arabia. It is still in the news, but it just doesn't seem to have the prominence that it once played even recently. And so in the middle of this this time period, you've been working diligently to introduce a new geopolitical framework is how I would refer to it. A new way of viewing the region in the broader scope of what you call Indo-Abrahamic relations. And you call this concept West Asia. So to kick things off, can you kind of walk through the listeners why they should start thinking of this region we've historically, as Americans called, the Middle East, why we should start replacing that notion with West Asia? And what is West Asia? I mean, this is very extreme framing. So when people say the Middle East, I feel it's a very misleading understanding of the map. You always... You always see a map on foreign policy, foreign affairs, where the Middle East somehow extends from Morocco and ends with Iran, right? Sometimes Afghanistan and Pakistan after the invasion of Afghanistan in the early 2000s. But actually, this is not a clear reflection of the history, geography, connectivity of the region. So I'm, I'm going back in history where Delhi to Cairo was very connected within a geopolitical system, either under the successive Muslim empires 
or under the British Empire itself. So, I mean, as you know, the occupation of Egypt was a direct result of the British strategic thinking of controlling the Red Sea to secure the British supply lines to India and South Asia. So I'm not really inventing something new. I'm just trying to highlight that the map that we're looking into is not really a clear reflection of how the region, how the system works in, in West Asia. For me, West Asia is a region that spans from Egypt because of the Red Sea and the Suez Canal and goes through the Arabian Peninsula, Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and ends in India. As you know, India is very close and nearby the Gulf. It's almost five hours away from Saudi Arabia. And so it gives you an idea about how connected and how close India is. And the moment you expand your vision of the map, you understand that we're able to have a balance of power in that region. The problem with this region is we lost the balance of power that existed that was able to maintain relative stability somehow between all these powers. And the moment the incubation of Iraq happened and then the fall of the Syrian state happened after the Arab Spring, you lost that sort of balance of power with Iran and Turkey. And then Iran and Turkey became much more of transregional, transnational powers that are able to project powers in different sub-regions and eventually destabilizing that system. So to stabilize that system again, you need to expand, zoom out, understand that this system exists beyond just Iran. Iran is not the end of the map. Actually, the map is bent to India. The moment you realize that, you're able to see a framework, a mechanism, where you're able to bring India to this region and you're able to have some sort of a coalition that's basically aims at stabilizing the region. Not really containing, not really doing a containment policy or strategy, but mainly moderating policies of some of these Eurasian powers in the region. That's in a nutshell my thesis. Well, you know, it's a, it's a brilliant concept and, you know, kind of tying into this, and we'll dig deeper into it, but it seems to me, at least from, from this perspective here in the United States, that we're living through something of a, of a renaissance for India and American strategic thinking, because for decades we spoke of things such as the Asia-Pacific, and what with the term of former, unfortunately now deceased, former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe, pushing the idea of an Indo-Pacific framework, obviously that tying into the quadrilateral security dialogue, or the Quad, which we've heard so much about recently between U.S., Japan, Australia, and India— India suddenly becomes a part of the Asia-Pacific in our strategic thinking on a more important level, the Indo-Pacific. And now it feels like this concept, which you're reintroducing to American policymakers and to, to strategic thinkers here in the States, is we're going to reintroduce India back into what we would formally call the Middle East, what you're now calling West Asia. I know you touched on it a little bit, but can you kind of highlight again the importance of India in this framework, particularly regards to balance of power, and even broader field, how this might tie into an idea of the Indo-Pacific? Excellent question. I think India is an up-and-coming power from demographics to economics to geopolitics to strategic ambitions to standing on glo global stage. India is up-and-coming and has started to change its own strategic thinking from a non-alignment standpoint or policy to being, to being more assertive on regional issues, such as Indo-Pacific, but also on global issues, right? From Afghanistan to energy security to the question of, of mainland Europe, India has been very active. And it's not surprising that India started to become a strategic 
partner to the United States because of its own centrality to different regions at the same time. India is very central to the Indo-Pacific, but also India is very central to formerly Middle East, currently West Asia. From location standpoint, from a demographic standpoint, like Indian migrants in the Gulf, we're speaking about millions, we're speaking about economic relations with the Gulf states and Egypt, security relations that's very deepening with, with Israel. Tech as well is, is a pivotal pillar of the Indian engagement with the region. So India is emerging on multiple fronts from the Indo-Pacific to West Asia. Again, reflection of the geopolitical weight of New Delhi at this point. And, and this is something positive, right? We have been missing some sort of a, a launch pad in the region that could be acting as a strategic partner that able to bring back balance of power. And this is what India is trying to become in the Indo-Pacific and, and West Asia. And you're right, it is quite the evolution for New Delhi from the era of the non-aligned movement in the Cold War into this very active, very prominent role, increasing role, across these two zones that we that we spoke about and which you described. I, I do want to talk about the I2U2 group, but before we get too deep into that, we should make note of something else, which is the White House press statement back in July announcing I2U2 again. We'll, we'll get into what that is in a moment. One of the first things that they define isn't the group, but rather they reaffirm support for the Abraham Accords and, quote, other peace and normalization agreements with Israel, end quote. Now, these made quite a bit of headlines back under the, the late Trump administration time period when they were first initiated. But perhaps you could walk through listeners, refresh their memory, or perhaps tell them for the first time, what were the Abraham Accords and, and why are they significant? And then we'll go into Indo-Abrahamic and I2U2. Absolutely. So the Abrahamic Accords, in a nutshell, is Washington-backed peace agreements, normalization agreements between Israel and a couple of Arab states who happen to be United States allies and partners, namely the UE, Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan. Sudan is a bit in a gray area because of the political transition taking place in Khartoum right now. But overall, you had the Trump administration successfully able to forge a peace agreement between Israel and these Arab states. And from a geopolitical standpoint, it's meant more of solidification of Israel positioning within the Middle East architecture as a country that's willing to partner with Arab states to work on collective security and strategic issues, of course, with the help of the United States as is still a remaining security guarantor in the Gulf. So the Abrahamic Accords right now is acting as a launch pad for Israel's strategic engagement in, in West Asia. And this is why when the I2U2 summit mentioned its own support for the Abrahamic Accord, that's its own as a geopolitical agenda. Because the Abrahamic Accord is the cornerstone for the I2U2. Because the I2U2, this alignment between India, Israel, and the UAE, wouldn't have happened without the Abrahamic Accords, wouldn't have happened without normalization between Israel and some of the Arab Gulf states, because not having official relationships have been hammering any sort of trilateral engagement that includes Delhi, who has been for the last many years, for the last 50, 60, 70 years, have been trying to find a delicate balance between Arab states and Israel. The moment they normalized, that was it. That was the opportunity. That was a strategic moment, and Washington smartly sees on it. And now we have the ITU2 as a launchpad for a new strategic framework in, in West Asia that includes the United States, the UAE, Israel, and India, and going to expand more in the future. 
And that's why I think it's so important to talk about this this concept of West Asia at the beginning, which you laid out so well. Because to me, when I when I first was exploring this, even as someone who tries to keep abreast of events in the field, you know, th- this particular grouping of nations as someone who didn't have an expertise in the region was interesting to me. India, Israel, again, as you said, the United States and the United Arab Emirates, not exactly four countries that most Americans immediately associate with each other. But again, on the backdrop of West Asia, on the backdrop of the Abraham Accords, which you just explained, it makes sense why they would be partnering. We'll get into a couple of questions to finish out this discussion on the specifics of I2U2 with food security, clean energy. We'll go there in a second, but I want to introduce one more kind of conceptual verbiage that you've been at the forefront of bringing into the American discussion, which is what you call this unprecedented Indo-Abrahamic trans-regional order. So again, taking this idea of West Asia being a zone that extends clean to India, the Abraham Accords normalizing relations between several Arab states and Israel, and then this new I2U2 conglomerate of countries starting to come together to work across issues, which we'll get into. You introduced this term, Indo-Abrahamic trans-regional order. What, what is Indo-Abrahamic? How is it distinct from the sort of Abraham Accords, and how does it build on that? And we'll get on from there. Absolutely. It builds on the Abrahamic Accords that, as we discussed, were performed under the Trump administration. And Indu is the India component, right? You have what happened is a consolidation of relationships and a strategic alignment between Israel and the UAE. And you have the United States is the main backer of that sort of alignment. And then when you add the India component, then you have the Indo-Abrahamic. And the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm calling it Indo-Abrahamic strategic alliance is because I see this as a launch pad for a more more expensive regional format that will eventually include Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the rest of American allies in the Middle East, such as Jordan, Bahrain in the future. And because the strategic essence of this is balance of power, is America's offshore balancer to the region, moving all our assets that we need to Asia as soon as possible, in the meantime, we're organizing the region around this sort of architecture that includes allies and partners from Israel to the Gulf to India with the aim of stabilizing the region and making sure that that sort of disruption that dictated West Asia for the last 20 years is at least slowing down right now. And again, this is a reflection of a broader discussion that you and I had about we cannot maintain multi-theater dominance. We don't have the resources. I'm speaking now as an immigrant to the United States. We don't have the resources. We don't have the bandwidth to maintain multi-theater dominance. And we need to think strategically and smartly about how can we manage our limited resources and focus on the most decisive theater, which is the Indo-Pacific. So my Indo-Abrahamic framework is more of we should and we must and we can do more with less in West Asia by changing how we see the map, by bringing and consolidating the alignment between our own strategic partners and allies in the region, and we're able to bring back balance of power. And now as a specific application of that framework, or at least the the government's interpretation and version of it that's underway would be I2U2. Again, India, Israel, UAE, and the United States. A heads of government meeting just announced in July, as I mentioned earlier. Various initiatives that they'll be focusing on. In particular, they highlighted food security. Several billion dollars of investment heading into India for state-of-the-art integrated food parks and research on renewable energy, reducing food waste, conserving fresh water, a whole variety of, of crop yield experiments, 
all designed to try and tackle food insecurity throughout the region. Also, a focus on clean energy, particularly a hybrid renewable energy project in India and the Gujarat state for solar capacity, wind capacity, and so on. And they also mentioned longer-term strategic objectives that are at the moment relatively undefined, but that would continue to focus on these sorts of, of trans-regional supply chain and food security and energy focus. Now, all that to say, this is all well and good, but how do you feel that this ITU2 framework, how good a job do you think it's doing on these initial initial pledges, initial plans, representing this, this Indo-Abrahamic framework that you've been articulating? Do you feel it's a good reflection? Do they need to do more? Do they need to do something different? What, what's your view? I think it's an excellent start. The fact you have the four leaders in the same space in launching this format is an excellent first start. And I'm okay with having a small initiative at the beginning and build this agenda gradually. Again, West Asia for me is a middle space between Europe and Asia and Indo-Pacific. And we're going through massive era of instability because of the war in Ukraine and mainland Europe and the tensions around Taiwan. So I understand if Washington and Delhi do not really have the bandwidth, the strategic bandwidth to think about future geopolitical agenda. So for now, having small things, something like confidence building measures, uh, let's talk about food security, energy security, space tech. I think these are excellent beginnings, like excellent initiatives at the beginning. And it also creates some sort of alignment on small things and you use this as foundation for alignment on bigger issues right yes also what's good about what's happening right now is you're not antagonizing anyone when you talk about food security and energy security and space and integrated farming that's that's great because it doesn't really poke anyone it doesn't cause warning worrisome for some regional powers and this is good at the beginning and now to kind of close out our discussion, because I do want to be respectful of your time, sir, there are two more things I want to discuss, and that would be the two elephants in the room, I would say, from my perspective, just beginning to get familiarized with this myself. Number one would be someone you mentioned earlier, which is Iran. The government in Tehran obviously still locked in a pretty bitter and acrimonious set of negotiations in Vienna, both with the European Union and with the United States. Regarding the JCPOA, or what was the JCPOA before the Trump administration pulled out of it, again, that's the Iran deal, they are not in a particularly good mood, I think, it's safe to say at the moment. And as an aspiring regional hegemon, how do you feel Tehran would approach this Indo-Abrahamic framework, given some of the geopolitical fault lines, as well as the aspirations of the Ayatollah and others? They should be worried, because any sort of bands of power in West Asia would be centered around limiting, limiting Iran's power projection in Central Asia, Middle East, or West Asia, Levant in general. And it's also worrisome because you're going to have much bigger geographies and demographics combined together to, to have collective power that's able to check Iran's activities. So if I'm a strategic thinker or a planner in Tehran, my first instinct is there is some sort of alignment between different regional governments in the region with the aim of limiting my power projection ability to project influence beyond my own mainland. And these powers will be able to build that coalition gradually. It's just a matter of time. And it's also a reflection of another dark reality. It's an open secret, but I think we are in a post-Iran deal, Middle East, with Asia. People already 
started to believe that there is no return to any sort of nuclear agreement with Tehran. Therefore, we need to look into the map differently and prepare the region for what's the day after. And with that framework in mind, this is how this is how you should see President Biden visit to uh, uh, Tel Aviv, his own statement about using all elements of American power to prevent Iran from having nuclear weapons. This is the framework you should see, you should use when, when you're analyzing the Jeddah summit and President Biden meetings with the Arab leaders. This also explains the ITU2 inaugural summit. It's somehow preparing West Asia for the day after we officially declare the death of nuclear negotiations with Iran. And President Biden was very clear about that before assuming office when I believe he had, he, he gave an interview to Thomas Friedman and he said his biggest concern in the region is if Iran got nuclear, Turkey, Egypt, Saudi Arabia will go nuclear. So he personally knows what are going to be the fallout and circumstances and the consequences of Iran going nuclear. So that, that's basically my, my framework and my understanding. Now, the, the second elephant in the room for me, so to speak, would be China. And in particular, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, this seems, this framework, I2U2, Indo-Abrahamic, this seems to really come to loggerheads, so to speak, with the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, that China's been pushing for some time. And... China obviously has a long-term strategic interest in tying countries increasingly into deeper and deeper economic interdependence with itself, particularly as it faces increasing domestic challenges at home with COVID, what looks by all apparent indications to be increasing tensions over Taiwan, not slackening, but increasing likelihood of some type of conflagration or conflict regarding the island, and yet continuing disagreement with, even on occasion, a, a skirmish-laden set of bloody incidents along the India border, the line of actual control. There's a lot of conflict in the region, either brewing or already starting to take place. You have the Belt and Road Initiative still proceeding, although with some with some hiccups in Sri Lanka and so on. But they cannot be happy about ITU2, can they? And what do they do about it? Or is there anything they can do about it? That's an excellent question. I think it's correct for us to see the Indo-Abrahamic framework and I2U2 mechanism as somehow a regional alignment in an area of great power competition. Meaning these partners and allies are coming together because they need to create a security architecture. And this is regardless of China or Russia. It's basically there is a need in West Asia for security architecture that's dealing with the immediate security concerns that have been dominating the region for the last, let's say, 30 years since Saddam Hussein's invasion of, of Kuwait. The question of China is very dominant in the region right now. And this being said, regional governments are trying to stay away from the China question, even if they're doing something or at least favoring the U.S. approach on some issues, they cannot really say this public or they don't want to be seen as they are favoring a power over another. And the reason for that is they believe we're in a multipolar environment, a multipolar system, and it's not really a smart strategy just to outright support a global power against another. Especially if you have strong security and military relations with the United States, but you have very strong trade, economics, and tech relations with China. So they are in a very tight spot from that standpoint. 
So I think even though they are working a lot on an economic integration, trade, tech, collaboration, cyber collaboration, they are trying to frame it as regional integration, as West Asia has never been integrated before. Meanwhile, you have ASEAN, you have Europe, you have West Africa Association. Well, here in West Asia, we have never had that sort of economic uh, strategic integration before. So we are really lagging behind. We need to work on that. So they are framing this as more of collective cooperation rather than just let's bend together to limit China access to the region on behalf of the United States. That's not really their framing at this point. And for the final question, what's your personal hope as someone who's instrumental in, in really pushing this geostrategic framework? What's your aspirational hope? If you could fast forward, I don't know, five, ten, you know, however many years down the horizon you want to say, where would you like to see I2U2 go as a specific formal agreement, cooperation? And where would you like to see this Indo-Abrahamic transregional order? How would you like to see it evolve? Would you like to see new partners join? If so, who might that be? What, what's kind of the end state that you feel would create stability for the area? And we'll close out there giving you the final word. As a public intellectual, as a strategist from, from Cairo, who was born right after the fall of the Berlin Wall and, and the end of the Soviet Union, I have been seeing massive instability in West Asia as a problem. And this is why I'm always trying to think about the question of balance of power and how can we bring that sort of stability. Because for me, bringing back stability to, to West Asia means less death, less destruction, you're able still to have societies intact and and preserve local culture. So I do believe that we need to restore balance of power. This is my entire strategy and endpoint. Restore balance of power in West Asia so you have people return to their homes and not really have another wave of civil wars going through the region. That's basically my biggest my biggest priority. To achieve this vision, you need more allies and partners to be part of this framework and mechanism. The framework is Indo-Abrahamic and the mechanism is the I2U2+. And my hope in the next five to 10 years, we're able to restore that sort of balance of power again in the region. So the I2U2 states, in addition to Egypt, Saudi Arabia, the rest of the US partners and the Gulf, and also pulling some of our own European allies, mainly Greece and France, into that sort of framework so we're able to build that system that connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Indo-Pacific through West Asia as a middle space. That's my biggest, this is my biggest strategic thinking on the region. Well, it's a fascinating concept. It's a rapidly developing picture, and it's something that I know our listeners would be wise to keep an eye on. And I'll include some links in the show notes as well. Be sure to check those out for articles that Muhammad has written. Unfortunately, we've run out of time for today, but I do want to say thank you to Muhammad Salman. Thank you for bearing with me and my inability to to get Arabic pronunciation correct on the last name. I appreciate your friendship on that. I appreciate your expertise on this interview and what you've shared with the listeners. You can make this a multi-part series, but again, I want to be respectful of your time. So thank you so much for coming on the New Diplomatist podcast and sharing about West Asia and the Indo-Abrahamic order. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed that and I appreciate your your intellect and your voice. You have been doing a great job with your podcast, bringing new thinkers and new strategists into the conversation. So I really appreciate you for that.